Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? I'm starting the first national and international conversation about courage and curiosity. What do these qualities really mean and why does it make a big difference to our mental, societal and democratic health? I talk to award-winning and diverse artists across the arts to explore these qualities in their lives and work, both to inspire and for us all to learn. I'm exploring why we need these qualities to help change the global epidemic of mental illness, loneliness, polarisation of our communities and even global conflict. If the arts cultivate courage and curiosity, I'm asking the question, can art save us? And my guest today is Adam Cameling, a former UK slam poet champion who has since become an interdisciplinary artist, combining his innovative poetry with theatre, dance and music. He embraces collaboration, risk and experimentation, and his poetry has a strong relationship with movement both on and off the page. His debut poetry collection, Cedar, explores his Jewish heritage and intergenerational trauma. The collection, however, reads as one long poem, meandering through layers of Adam's own and inherited memories, but all uninterrupted by punctuation or page titles. Guided, you are never lost, but this poem is born of loss, of the millions of lives in the Holocaust, but also of love returned in remembrance, a shared route. Adam's theatre work has been reviewed as dazzling brilliance, his rap as unpretentious, and his work with young people in foster care as sensational. Hello, Adam, and a very warm welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure. I'm so glad you, you could make the time. Um, fascinating uh, doing my, my research on, on your career to date. And I wondered from that point of view, Adam, if, if we could begin actually with your route from the abstract noise of punk and metal bands to your search and to use your words for coherence and eloquence. Yeah, um... It's rare, it's rare that I get to talk about this unless I've crowbarred it into something because I want to talk about it. So it's really, really nice to be asked the question. Um, I, oh, my, my, first, uh, my first forays into expression and performance were uh, as a kind of late teenager playing in, <clears throat> playing in metal bands. And that was something that kind of saw me through 10 years of creative output and... It, uh, I think you know a- a- anyone that's been a teenager can relate to the the draw towards those genres of music where kind of aggression and explosion and kind of the the most intense feelings, whatever feelings you're bringing, they're often kind of cranked up, and that's I mean you know that's kind of teenhood, isn't it? That's being a teenager and being a young person. And um, yeah, and it was something that I got a lot from, and I feel like it taught me a lot in regards to my approach to creating and also to consuming art. Because in that world, you very rarely hear something and just are immediately on board with it. It's very rare that somebody gives you something that they really love, and and as soon as you listen to it, you're like, yeah, this is fantastic. It takes work to kind of get through the 
well, the noise of it to, 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 to find the heart of what someone's making. And that was, that was the music that I enjoyed the most and grew to enjoy the most and still enjoy the most now is often the music that I struggled with the most. And I think that's something that is, it's just a wonderful lesson in regards to uh, resilience and the kind of active participation of art consumption um, or art uh, taking it in. So yeah, it's, um, it's something that I, that I'm very grateful that I, that it is my route um, and uh, beginning there, which is a space which doesn't really uh, necessarily offer itself well to being articulate and being eloquent after nearly 10 years of kind of making this very abrasive and erratic music, um, I found myself wanting or, or, or needing to be more articulate and I found my way to lyrics and spoken words and um and storytelling and that you know that that just pulled me in basically and uh, and that kind of became my career that became my professional creative practice and i uh and i think a part of my interdisciplinary work is me seeking actually to go back to that world of abstraction and uh there's this term odd harmonics where when you distort a signal you're letting more and more and more in and you have a less clear signal but you have a more detailed sound um and there's something about that i think in my interdisciplinary work and the performance work that i do and the way that everything kind of ties together um is is i'm kind of seeking to just distort the articulation that i found and the kind of the eloquence that i found um, and that I perform regularly when I get to work with other people, I, I really relish the the interruption and the confusion and the the wider palette that I could never achieve by myself. Well, never say never, but I have yet to. Yeah, and I read that um, when you decided if you like to move on from slam poetry it was appreciating it as a very distinct but unified voice and and you're interested in that diversification of voices and and from what you were just saying freedom of form something that you can keep exploring and I wondered at that point, was that a, a natural progression as you moved towards your interdisciplinary work or, or was it even an act of courage in some way because you were branching out into unknown territory and after being a slam poet champion? Well, I think something about slam poetry is it, it, it is rooted in the competition of the slam. And when you have a competition and you have judges you have winning techniques in the same way that in sport you will have the techniques that 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 produce the fastest runners or produce the best basketball players whatever um in slam there was a a form that emerged that was almost the slam form and you, it's very uh, apparent in american slam where I think the stakes are much higher. And if someone wins the national um, slam poetry competition, you know, they're, they're, 
they're really set. Like their career is going to fly. Um, the stakes are a little bit or considerably lower in the UK. Um, but I did win that championship at a time where I felt there was really a wonderful myriad of voices. I got, I, I was held by slam poetry and I think I ended up there as opposed to kind of, um, emceeing because the range of voices that I was experiencing was like utterly mind boggling. Like I loved it. I came up in Brighton where there's a wonderful hip hop scene and the wonderful poetry scene and in poetry the 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 anarchy of those spaces as controlled and as well run as they were came from the diversity of voice and i absolutely loved it you had the most wonderful artists many of which are still operating now and they have the most unique voices and uh and and I and I just loved that. And then as poetry, um, I, I think in the time when I was kind of most active in touring and whatnot, we had a kind of a bringing in of this or a creeping in of this kind of slam poetry style, which is it really is kind of probably the most effective way to get the reaction that I think a lot of poets are looking for, which is to move an audience. Um, and it kind of lends itself to the three to four minute format and uh, and a certain kind of style of writing, which is very emotive and sincere. And and some incredible writers operate in that in that form. But as I saw this kind of unifying voice, I just became sort of turned off or maybe like slightly alienated because it wasn't what I wanted. I my sets weren't even a unified voice. You know, like there were there were pieces of my work that were kind of stand up. There were pieces of my work that were monologues. There were pieces of my work that were kind of that were fitting the form that I'm talking about. Um, and as I kind of was like, I'm not this is no longer exciting me and it's not giving me the diversity of voice that I need. I started looking elsewhere and what I I actually had a couple of years kind of in the wilderness and I think anyone who has a kind of creative practice, you know, can probably relate to this, but there are times where you almost feel like a stranger in your own practice and you're not necessarily blocked, but you're not excited to create. You're not excited by the things that you're seeing and it starts to become, I suppose, a drag. And that's obviously down to your interior, what's happening for you in your interior world as well. So that's not the fault of any kind of poetry scene or any scene. But I went looking for other things and I I kind of went back a little bit to metal. I started going to metal shows again. I started going to theatre and I found Fringe Theatre to be a space where it was full of freaky, fruity, juicy, meaty, horrifying, mind-numbing, like, like the diversity of voice really existed there and... and and I, I found I found in Fringe Theatre this kind of amazing um, uh, palette of, of 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 voices and performance styles. And suddenly I was like, okay, maybe this is a space where, you know, I can I can I can find the thing I'm looking for. And um, and yeah, and then actually, shout outs to uh, Berkovich, a, a a a spoken word artist who started working with break dancers. He really kind of 
he was one of the first people to take that that I'd seen into a kind of like a, a show format. He made an hour-long show called Shame with breakdancers. And there are people that came before him. John Z D is a big one, but I never I never saw them. I saw Burko and I'd been researching a piece called Shall We Take This Outside where I knew that I needed to create something. I'm jumping around a fair bit, but this will come back to your question, Paula. But I was researching um, male aggression and hero narratives because it was something that I felt would influence my life massively uh, and not, not in positive ways. And I needed to make, I'd recognized that I needed to make something that was a risk. I needed to put something on the line. And I hadn't been doing that. I'd been operating in quite a safe space for a couple of years. And so I started making this thing and I knew through uh, R&Ding it that it needed to be physical because it was a physical subject. It was this, this, you know, the subject of, you know, fighting at its most basic form and why, you know, young disenfranchised, disenfranchised males are drawn to that. And, um, and so I knew I wanted to work with physical artists, and then I, that's when I started. That's when I started working with um, dancers. And through those collaborations, I realised that by working, by collaborating, actively collaborating, and bringing people into your research process, it's like bringing in different, like, paintbrushes and different. Uh, types of paint it just totally changed what was happening and it was incredibly exciting and I was so invigorated and my practice was reinvigorated and I couldn't sleep I was so excited about getting into the rehearsal studio or getting to the cafe to uh, you know adapt the script or meeting the drama tag it was it was a real kind of rebirth um, for me uh, and it, it, it came from feeling like this unified voice was not doing what I needed as as a as a reader of work, as a maker of work, and and finding and finding collaboration through a need to uh to serve some work that I was making. Um and yeah, it all for me it all kind of feeds into goes back to essentially beginning my life in bands and um trying to make a racket and make something which surprises uh, and kind of creates awe. Uh, so that's sort of what I'm seeking for my collaborations, surprise, awe, and distortion. So, yeah. yeah, and it's interesting that you um, refer to rebirth because that's that's what that two year hiatus, if you like, sounded like. You know that that uncomfortable period where artistically you may feel uh, lost or a stranger to your own work, but it's also a very relevant and sometimes necessary process, isn't it, as, as part of your your evolution? And and mentioning. Yeah, and mentioning shall we take this outside um, uh, would be um, a, a good time to explore that um, a bit further. And, and in my introduction, that quote, a work of true dazzling brilliance, was a review of Shall We Take This Outside uh, by Yak Magazine. And I was really interested that you were wanting to explore hero behaviour uh, in terms of world attitudes to violence and also in, as you said specifically in relation to, to male mental health and um, I wondered 
what your explorations threw up really in terms of how heroism becomes distorted as you were saying distortion is is effectively one of your themes because courage is often related to heroism um and it's always kind of extreme acts life-saving acts um or very much a distorted fantasy how would you say you explored that idea of of heroism and courage and perhaps and perhaps shared different meanings absolutely well i mean my exploration of that began when i was really young and my my dad had been a comic but comic book head when he was a kid and he kept boxes and boxes of these comic books from the 70s in uh his parents loft in my grandparents loft and when i went to my grandparents house he would he would get them down for me and it was like it was incredible like these old i still remember the smell of them dusty spider-man comics conan the barbarian comics they were especially problematic um you know, Superman, X-Men was a big one. Like all, 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 the whole Marvel and DC universe, the beginnings of that were kind of there in these boxes that I just immersed myself in. Uh, it was so wonderful to have this thing that was a connection. I mean, at the time I wasn't like, oh, this is a connection to, you know, my father, but it, but it was, and it was given to me in a space which was a space of family it was in my grandparents house which was such a beautiful and welcoming and wonderful space and here was this thing which was given to me and I loved it like like every you know young boy loves every young person loves comic books um because they are they're bold and they are and they're binary they 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 present the world in this kind of really simplistic and uh victorious way that the narratives that they tell are the narratives of good overcoming evil uh, and that very that, that being a very simple process and you know that's why we're drawn to them and it's what the same reason you know the marvel universe has had such a kind of like a hollywood uh, success uh, recently um so these stories are like very uh, uh captivating stories and they're stories that we're drawn to um but the binary nature of them is, I think, I think is poisonous for young minds. If the conversations around, if the conversations around the kind of non-binary nature of the world are not happening, the stories that we consume um, kind of help shape our moral framework. And the thing that I had felt as a male and the things that I'd enacted was that in order to be a, a good person, in order to be a good man, I needed to be prepared and able to enact violence essentially, or, or, or be a physical barrier. And, uh, and yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, and it isn't healthy. Uh, and that's really obvious. That's really clear now. And we all kind of understand these things. Yeah, because it is very much, um, talking to, to uh, one of your themes of, of distortion and, and you're absolutely right uh, you know male models of masculinity attached to distorted ideas of what heroism is of courage um, you know that, that can become fantasy like or as you're saying horribly extremist if it just deteriorates into into being violence but I was interested in how 
through going uh, through going um, into this exploration, you could also give things like heroism and courage your own definition, if you like. You know that that courage can belong to really small acts, but that are but but they're acts that are really important to that particular individual that are scaled to that particular individual so I just wondered how it helped shift all of those issues in your own understanding of of heroism and, and courage that's such a lovely question and uh, and it's I have a couple of stories actually which I can which if, if that's okay I'll share as a kind of like a demonstration of like the process and how I developed over the process um and one story is one actually formed a part of the show. And at the beginning of this, not the beginning of the research, but at the beginning of me knowing that this was something that I was going to create and going full steam into the research and really immersing myself in it. I as like I'm like I'm a grown-up and I and I and I'm living in London at this time, as I still do. And as a grown-up, I haven't been in any kind of real or dangerous or physical altercation for as a long long time years in clubs if think i used to go to nightclubs and obviously they can be quite charged places I, like I, it wasn't something that i was interested in it wasn't something that i needed but there were other reasons why i needed to look at this stuff but when i started researching this stuff and going full steam into it suddenly physical altercations were just coming to me it was like I manifested them in you know have you heard of the secret that book that when people like make their manifestation boards and then you know if they put loads of wealthy images then they will attract wealth like I don't believe in that for yeah. a second <laughs> but it <laughs> well, was I think we, we'd all be wealthy otherwise wouldn't yeah, we it'd be really really easy wouldn't it <laughs> if only yeah but <laughs> and it, this, it, very strangely, when I was every day reading about these kind of traits of toxic masculinity and the ways that they are formed and the ways that they manifest, and um, I was just constantly being faced with physical altercation. It was just coming to me. I was not seeking it out, but suddenly things would just happen. Someone would kick off on the bus and it would be directed at me. Um, someone, you know, you kind of have one of those moments in the street where you're like both bouncing the same direction on the pavement and no one can get past each other and uh and someone someone's triggered by that and they scream in your face I'm like wow where is all this stuff it's like I'm making this stuff happen and then I was in a kebab shop and uh there was a very one of the guys who worked in the kebab shop was really old and very small he's he kind of looked like a lovely old grandpa with his white mustache and probably five foot one five foot two and two drunk guys were in the kebab shop and, and, and one of them asked where the toilet was and uh and the the the, the lovely old man kind of was trying to tell him but his english wasn't very good and the drunk guy wasn't listening and so the the guy came out from the counter and pointed to where it was and was stood right in front of him and was pointing to the toilet and this guy was really tall and much younger than him just put his face in his face and screamed like speak fucking english and and me and my friend were just so shocked and it was such an abuse of power and such an act of i mean racism and 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 just it was awful that you know me and my friend both stood up to this person and said you can't you can't speak to that you can't speak to people like that you certainly can't speak to this person like that and you probably need to leave and find somewhere else to use the toilet 
and and this guy and his mate they kicked off and then the kebab guys came around and no one messes with kebab guys so these guys got ushered out of the shop and um and me and my friend we got our burgers and this was after a poetry gig actually we got our burgers and kind of went on our way but as we were walking to the bus stop we were confronted by these two people again and uh and 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 there was there was no there was no way of of not of, uh, there was no way of not having an altercation it was like it was in an alleyway um it was you know very very aggressive and and there was no way to stop it and um but you know thankfully uh like i'm thankfully we came out no one got too badly hurt and certainly me and my friend didn't and and everyone everyone walked away from it and it, and but I, a part of what my research had been doing some kind of boxing work. And I really do think that that altercation was ended as quickly and as, and as safely for everyone as it was because of the research that I was doing. And it was so strange to, to be like, I have become more effective in this thing that I'm really questioning simply through researching it. And it, and it made me feel awful and, and it kind of became like the backbone of the show essentially was like, I've, I've actually committed this kind of act of heroism in the most binary way possible. This person was like definitely a baddie. It was absolutely self-defense. It was 100%. Every, everyone was safe in the end and no one was badly hurt, but I was definitely the hero. In, and and, it, and it, I would have been the hero in any Hollywood film that I'd ever seen. But I had also hurt someone and they would have felt having been hurt myself in the past in similar ways, much worse than what happened there. I, I know that he would have felt horrible the following day and, and for a few days and I felt horrible the following day. And, and it, it, that kind of, like I say, became the spine of the show and that enabled me to kind of like carry my research on and, and, that was, I think that was the last time I had any kind of physical altercation, even in, even in quite when uh, I faced someone who is actively seeking a physical altercation, what I've been able to do. And I really think I needed to go through the process of this, of making that peace um, and consider what courage and what heroism is. And it, you know, it feeds into my teaching and education practice. Um, and, and my creative practice as a whole is that courage is actually is about empathy. And when you meet someone who is, who is really struggling, which is, you know, nine times out of 10, what's happening if you are faced with someone who is an aggressor, you, someone is really struggling and this, you know, doesn't work for everyone, but it works for me. And it, and from when the power balance is relatively equal, when you're met with someone who is an aggressor, they are a person who is struggling. They're in they're, what they're doing is they're presenting their interior world to you, and and if you can meet that with kindness, and if you can meet it with genuine empathy, then you solve, or you there is potential to solve. And the the second story that I'd like to tell is something that happened kind of just before the show went on tour and it didn't make it into the show but it all it lives as a part of the show for me there was a boy on a train and it was a Sunday early evening and as the train doors closed on the tube he threw a bottle through the doors and it smashed on the wall on in the tube station 
And and a few people on the train were like, don't do that. You know, someone's got to clean that up. It's dangerous. And he was like, yeah, whatever. He was clearly like quite inebriated. He, he had a, sh- a shopping basket full of booze that he clearly pinched. Um, and he was a very kind of distressed young man. Um, but one guy took more grievance than another and he really kind of poked at him as the train kept going. He was like, you know, like, why'd you do that? You're a dickhead. Like, you're you're a scumbag, da-da-da-da. And, you know, I was kind of, I, I, I was saying to this guy, you know, it's done. We've all said our piece, like, there's no need to carry it on. The young man was becoming more and more upset and more and more aggressive and I could feel I stood right next to him I could feel his body tensing he was holding a bottle I was like this has the potential to get really 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 horrible and I just stood a little bit closer to him and asked him if he was okay the 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 young man who was kind of um who'd thrown the bottle and I asked him if he was okay and he was so and it just it just punctured this kind of like aggressive space and I think it very slightly shamed the other person who had kind of been antagonizing this young man and he was quiet and he got off very soon after. And I had a conversation with this young man and he was sad. He was sad because he had essentially kind of got a bit too wasted, lost a bit of time. His friends had moved on without him and he was, he was traveling to them, but he was also bummed out that he'd missed and that they'd left him and, he was, he, you know, he was quite insecure and he was quite young, probably maybe 20. And he was just hurting. And I was able to talk to him and I was able to have a joke with him and I was able to, you know, talk, talk to him about the night that he'd, excuse me, talk to him about the night that he'd had and the more fun aspects and members of his friendship group that he was looking forward to seeing and other things that they'd done in the past. And we just had a lovely 10 minutes together and he left that space bolstered having not been in a physical altercation that at worst could have resulted in a criminal conviction for him or a trip to hospital. And at best would have just left everyone feeling really rubbish and he would probably have just gone home. Yeah. Um, yeah, these are such, such, such significant insights. Thank you so much for revisiting them and sharing them because both sounds, you know, hugely frightening, distressing, intimidating. But isn't it a significant example of how you discover someone who's behaving so aggressively can actually be um, a call for help and it's an expression of of vulnerability in fact you know that you went on to discover his sadness his his insecurity um it really shows doesn't it the importance of of being able to tackle these stereotypes really of what male masculinity or male male models of masculinity of are um it's it's a really it's a really lovely example of of how that can literally be turned around three hundred and sixty degrees. What really stands out to me, of course, Adam, is everything you were talking about, even the comic books in your grandparents' loft. Those examples you just shared um, through the theatre work. Let's take this outside. You're also talking about those binaries of of good and evil, um, 
weak and strong and 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 power balance and of course this all points very clearly to cedar your your debut collection of poetry so i'd be really interested in in us exploring that because cedar obviously um is in response to one of the most violent acts the world has ever seen although there are many it's undoubtedly one of the most violent acts the world has ever seen the holocaust and you have been quoted as saying your jewishness is rooted in grief so i wondered if you'd like to share how you've gone on to express that in cedar and also through your particularly innovative approach in terms of how it's even laid out on the page jewishness is rooted in grief i think that's um i wouldn't state that as a fact but i think for me my relation to my jewishness is rooted in grief it's rooted in loads of other beautiful things as well um but maybe they're just a little bit further up the route uh and the reason being is that uh my Grandfather was a kind of transport evacuee and he lost um, members of his immediate family. And uh, we've always, you know, I mean, I don't need to explain interdisciplinary trauma, I'm sure, to your, I might need to say it right, though, interdisciplinary trauma. Intergenerational. Yeah, interdisciplinary trauma. Yeah, that's what the show is. <laughs> yeah, that's what the first Amazing. That's the next, next, yeah, the next creative expression of oh, trauma. Oh, wow. Powers. Yeah, intergenerational trauma. Yeah, I mean, that's that's why my Jewishness is rooted in grief. Um, and But do you know what? The reason that I can say that and not feel, not feel like somehow my Jewishness is a sad aspect of my identity is because everything that I've experienced through... Um, my Judaism is like it like is wonderful. Everything that I've carried through is wonderful. It's ritual, it's family, it's welcome, it's uh, you know, it's it's celebration and food and song and 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 a, and a kind of embodied feeling that is is beyond language which is essentially Hebrew for me. I I learned to read Hebrew and I spoke Hebrew every week but I never understood it as a language. I only ever knew it as sound. And I, I wonder if that's one of the reasons that I was drawn to poetry and also drawn to kind of noisier forms of music because there's th- this sense that I've kind of kind of discovered in the research of Seder of Hebrew being something which for me is only feeling and it's closer to music than it is to language. Uh, for for me, it, it's it's feeling without textural meaning. Um, but yeah, so uh, yeah, so Jewishness rooted in grief, but the tree that's grown from that root is something that I value and adore and have so much. Uh, I'm so grateful for it, basically. Um, so coming back to the book, the book. Uh, you're talking about the layout of everything on the page, right? Um, the the book is, I think you mentioned in your intro, is 
it's not it's a series is a series of poems but i've written them in you know there was nothing written outside of the process which has been pulled in everything was written as a part of the process and everything is in the book and it's sort of designed to be uh read almost like in one sitting like if i could instruct every person that bought seder like how are you gonna how you gonna read it i'd be like make two cups of tea (laughs) and don't get up till it's done um but but obviously, however people want to consume it is how they want to consume it. But for me, the it was important that the um, the poems belonged to each other. Like I'm exploring lineage, and and I really got a sense that the 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 events that happened before me have really shaped me. The the whole process was essentially me understanding that I was experiencing kind of intergenerational trauma. And never really wanting to look at it because that meant having difficult conversations with members of my family, difficult conversations with myself. And I, I and I never, I never, I never wanted to look at it. And as a result, I think I spent a lot of my twenties kind of not feeling very Jewish. Um, and when the time came for me to write a collection, when I felt ready to do it, um, I knew this is what I wanted to explore. And actually, when I started, I wanted to explore the connection between Jewishness and and heavy metal and noise, because for me, I always felt they were connected. And the book ended up leaving that kind of research. We put that to one side because it was it was muddying things. It was distorting them a little bit too much. And uh, and that, that will have to be another project. But, you know, like that, that firstly, the, the space of like a, like noisy music being somewhere where you can take huge feelings and you can express them at the very limit of your physical capacity. And that is welcomed. It's encouraged. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like too much. You can, you know, you can go and scream for 30 minutes and there is an audience for it. Um, and, and so, yeah. And I mean, you know, that's what I used to do. And, uh, and yeah, so, so there, there, there is the kind of the trauma link and the difficult feelings link, but I also think there's something about the the sound without language um, and or the kind of language being placed in this kind of form, which is quite distorted and the words are kind of the last, the, the least important thing um, when you're kind of listening to, to, to some, of, some of these bands or, you know, the music that I made. Um, so I think there were those two connections to, to Hebrew and, um, that, like I said, got kind of parked. And what ended up happening is I wrote this I wrote this book and I was at the last stage. So I had all the poems that wanted to go in there. And I knew the story that the book was telling and I knew my place in it. And the last stage for me was essentially finding the form that tied it all together on the page. All the poems were finished, but there wasn't, it it didn't look like a collection. It looked like loads of poems. And if you read it, they all kind of threaded together, but that wasn't visually represented. Now I'd always planned to take this work to my collaborators to carry on this exploration in the way that I'd kind of grown to get the most from. So I, I had this kind of week of R&D with uh, three dancers and two musicians. Um, 
And what we discovered was physical forms. We looked at the stories and we looked at the motifs in the work and we found these physical forms. And one of the forms is the goldfish that I hope we'll get to have a quick chat about before we finish. But yeah. the goldfish is a motif oh, definitely. throughout the book. And we ex- like that was something that I placed in the book because of an experience that I had in an, in an instinct that I could not shake. I knew the goldfish belonged to the work, but I still didn't have the reason, all the reasons why beyond an experience. I knew I liked what it was doing, but I couldn't, it was like it was, it was obscured. And with my collaborators, I was able to, shine it was like everyone brought their own torch and we all shined our torch on a different part of these motifs and we found these forms we found how they connected to the work and it it was a conversation and I think that's something that I need as an artist I need conversation which is tricky as a poet because you're pretty much conversing with yourself a lot of the time but you know it's 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 something that even if I don't have the budget to bring people into a room, I know that I need to be talking to my collaborators and talking to my peers and making sure those conversations are happening however they can. But what we found was the goldfish, the way the goldfish moves, right, is you have a muscular body and then you have these kind of long, wispy fins that you have no control over. The body has control and the fins only have impact really um we imagine the events in the book as the kind of the muscles of the goldfish and then anything or well i should say the events at the heart of the book um which is essentially the events of the holocaust being this kind of like the muscles of this goldfish and the lineage, the generations that came after are the Finns. They have no choice but to be affected by this kind of muscular body. And however they are affected, there's still there's still beauty and delicacy and use. Like the Finns aren't just there for no reason. They're doing something and we found this form, which was essentially this kind of muscular body. And then this kind of, I want to say wispy, but wispy is like the wrong word, man. Wispy is not, it's too, it's too limp, but something more delicate that, that can't help but be impacted by this kind of the, the muscular event. Um, and that's, that's a physical form that we played with. And, uh, and it led to some beautiful stuff that I shared over kind of the past couple of years when the book's been out and um and when i came to came back to the book after that week working with my collaborators i was able to transpose some of those things that we discovered onto the page and and it and it and it ties the book together and i'm I, i'm so proud of that being a collaborative exercise because i really feel like it it does what i needed it to do which ties every poem to itself um they are they are all connected by their form they're all connected by their stories and they're all connected by their the, the lineage of 
of of their birth essentially um so it really um yeah i'm 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 very proud of that so yeah um yeah 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 and i think it's probably um if you're happy to a good point to um explore the significance of of the gold fish further because of course this relates to your visit to Auschwitz, which I can only imagine is so disturbing. This entirely depends on how much you want to talk about that. Um, But I do understand that, of course, it was the unexpected sighting of a living goldfish at Auschwitz. And I wondered if you might want to share that experience, literally the, the emotional, physical experience of that visit and seeing the goldfish. Absolutely. So, I mean, Auschwitz is going to be harrowing for anyone. And and uh, I went at the beginning of this research process because I knew there was something I needed to do. And I'd had the conversations with my grandfather that I knew I needed to have. And I really kind of dived into the beginnings of my research, which involve personal family stories and also, you know, the wider accounts. Um, and, and it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was awful <laughs> as you know, it is, I'm sure for everyone, but it was, yeah, it was, it was so, it was so harrowing. And I, and I went there really early because I'm generally quite, um, I'm not the best organized person. So I was a little bit late booking my tour, uh, but it was good. It meant I got, got up really early and I, and I was kind of in there by 7am and by kind of 11 o'clock, I, I kind of toured both sites. Um, and, and, uh, yeah. And it was, it was, it was really hard. Go on, sorry. I imagine it was, uh, sorry to interrupt, but I, ju- I just imagine it was a, a huge act of courage. I I personally would, would not be brave enough to ever visit those sites. Um, the the echoes of, of that history being so present, uh, it, it's just so utterly disturbing. I just can't imagine having the courage. So was this a really significant act of of courage on your part because you had a you know a direct relationship there with your family history do you know it's really it's really interesting that you bring courage in because my first instinct is no because it was just something that I had to do like um I'm trying to think to to really like minimize it uh like your taxes is something you have to do. You have to do it. You you just have to do it. You don't have a choice. Um, it's obviously in, totally different, but I knew that I didn't really have a choice. So was it an act of courage? Possibly not. But having gone through it and then being sat across the coach park at like half 11, having had like uh, a cup of coffee and... Uh, I was smoking at the time, smoking way too many cigarettes because because of how difficult it had been. To then sit there and think, right, I am here, not just because I'm doing this for myself, I'm here 
because I am writing something and what I am writing is important, not just for me, It is quite difficult to talk about, but my grandfather, I, I, like I would never want to say that I'm carrying on my grandfather's work because I'm not, and that's not my drive. But my grandfather did a lot of talks in schools and, and anywhere. I mean, he was incredibly active for about 10 years, like bowling around the country, uh, giving talks on his experiences. Uh, and and I think there was maybe some aspect of recognising his courage and being like, I, like, I, I, you know, I have to go in there and, and 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 go back in as a writer. I've just gone in as Adam, son of Max, grandson of Walter. <laughs> Sorry, that's like the Jewish the Jewish way of describing it. Um, and and uh, and I, and I had to go back in as a writer, and I had to I had to make notes, and I had to observe, and I had to be present in a different way. I had to be present in a way that was drinking it in and was present emotionally, but was also cerebrally absorbing in order to be able to recreate and respond effectively as, as, as an artist. So I had to go back in there and I, I was sat at this kind of nasty little metal table that, that was wobbling and, you know, the cafe at Auschwitz is suitably dismal, um, which is great. You know, like no one wants to be ordering like a, a craft coffee uh, after after that. And so I've got my, I've drunk, a, <laughs> I've drunk a Sprite for, for a bit of energy. Like I can't eat anything, I'm, I'm, you know, because of the experience that I've just had. But I've drunk a Sprite and I've smoked half a pack of fags and, and I'm like, all right, cool. Come on then. Let's go back in, and I'm walk, and I walk back in through the gates, and I'm looking up the kind of old old railroad, and I have and I and I do not know how I'm going to operate for the next couple of hours, and that's when I stopped and I kind of leant against this fence in front of this pond, and I was just kind of looking into this kind of dark water, and uh there was a, a a frog at the end it's like a concrete pond that i imagine would have been for um horses to drink from when it was a working a working space and uh, and there's a frog at the edge of this pond and i was like oh you know it's not every day you see a frog so i'm looking at this frog and just kind of allowing myself to be taken away a little bit from the experience i've just had <clears throat> and then my eyes are drawn to the middle of this pond it's quite a big pond and in the middle of this kind of like black water, there's a goldfish, like a like a like a goldfish, like you would see at the at the at the carnival. Like it's it's a bright orange, small but with these long fins. It's this bright orange fish at the surface of this water, and there's no other fish there. And I'm and I'm totally surprised to see it, and it floats there for a moment, and and I have a, a moment being like, "What on earth is this guy doing here?" And then it disappears, as goldfish do, back into the shadows. And and I and and I remember, I almost like remember standing up from the fence at that point, being like, "Oh, well, I'm like, I've got like cool, like what a remarkable thing, I've got this." 
and then I went in and and I, and 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 did what I needed to do and made the notes that I needed to make and it's amazing it's like the i mean the, it, it's such an unlikely sighting and yet it's really lovely how this goldfish has almost become your companion how how the goldfish at that time almost enabled you to continue with your your visit and how you how you were effectively honoring your own your own family and and those those that were lost and of course our companion through the through the book seder because the the form on the page is 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 moving swimming like a little goldfish nice yeah (laughs) so would you say that goldfish was really um you know particularly powerful in terms of how you ended up producing that work uh, like coming back to the courage question I, like I needed something to lift me and that experience was the thing that I needed to take me into that space probably the courage was actually walking across that coach park going through the gateway but then at a moment where I was like I don't know how I'm going to do this I was emboldened and I was lifted and I was given some form of strength by the sighting of a creature <laughs> and I did all the research in the world when I got back and I couldn't find a single mention of a goldfish in any travel blog in any in any kind of like academic text there was I couldn't find anything and it was such this, this such a mysterious sighting um and it just stayed with me and the goldfish came to represent firstly vulnerability and escape uh, which is something that goldfish are particularly good at. It came to represent pride and beauty, like the kind of the the fact that this wasn't a kind of you know a, a, like a a beige fish or like a dark coloured fish. The fact that this was a bright orange like flame in the middle of this water, um, which almost makes me think. Now I'm speaking of like the Nertamid, like the everlasting flame that you. Uh, that that is lit in synagogues that is always lit in synagogues like it it just was there alone and it was beautiful and it was fragile and it was surprising and it and it and it it gave me something and it stayed with me and the other thing that it provided was it provided a space for me to come away from the story of trauma the goldfish gave me a gift which was this wonderful surreal avenue of exploration that i desperately needed up, up until that point when it all got too much and there were days it, it did get too much i was living with 11 people at the time which i loved and sometimes i would come home from research and writing and i just had to go to bed because there are certain there are certain things that i read that related directly to my uh grandfather's stories there are certain things that are just so sad um that i couldn't i couldn't be around other people um and in order to kind of like solve that i would read about partisan armies or like the kind of hebrew revenge squads after the war which is still you know you're still reading stories of violence and stories of um they might be stories of kind of like traditional heroism but they're still they're still rooted in trauma and grief and challenge. And to have this goldfish story that I could explore, like what is the goldfish doing with me now? Why is it with me now? Why was it there then? 
why can I not shake it? And to be able to just play was something that I needed so desperately. The goldfish, the goldfish was my hero, which was essentially a, a, a relief. It, it, it allowed, it gave me a space of relief without taking me away from the work and enabled me to, to finish the work, to continue the work, to do what I needed to do to get this work out, which was something that I needed to do for myself as well as my publisher. But it, it, but it, it, it enabled me to do it. it it's, I, yeah, I don't know. Like if, if we wanted to tie all this conversation together, maybe the goldfish was the empathetic stranger that came and just offered me a salve in a moment of, you know, um, terrible uh, insecurity and challenge and trauma. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, it, for me, it really read like like a little miracle, literally. You know, because in such a desolate, horrendous setting, to see that that little life form, but also in all its splendor of such rich color, uh, is such an amazing contrast and moment for you to have witnessed it it, to me it just feels like a a little miracle whether miracles exist or not but it's interesting because of course fishes sorry Sorry, Paula you said at the beginning that I should wherever I could just jump in and read a poem and I'm I'm aware that I've just been kind of rambling on you know uh, (laughs) because that's uh, you know the sound of my own voice is not something that I'm afraid of uh but I'd like to read the poem something that I've actually constructed which relates directly to what we're talking about now um and this is a poem that came from um, the goldfish and for me holds something of the um, the juxt well the difficulty of holding pride and love next to trauma and and difficult and harrowing memories this is called orange 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 the beds of unselect eyes Orange, the pebbles puncture through glass. Orange, the fire and ember and lava. Orange, the line on a knuckle. Tourists demean onto gravel, all orange. The caffeinated gibber of bus exhaust, its awful taste. Orange, the phlegm that comes at the end of something easy and the beginning of something worse. Orange, the edge of floor tom, its rusted blood against drum skin. Orange, the electrode flooded vacuum, its glass cup. Orange, the drum skin, the orange heat wave broken by an unreal rain. Orange, this hangover, wasping the skull for a life. Orange, the firm joint caliper framing a young girl's head. Orange, the unvenomous snake feeding frozen mice in its gullet because orange, the bricks. Orange, the 28 brick buildings, the 23 kilos, the 500,000. Orange, the goldfish in the pond at Auschwitz. Orange, the trough, the tank, the pond. There is a goldfish in the pond. There is a goldfish. 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 Thanks. Oh, thank you for reading that. It's it's so powerful and and, and energized and and tragic at the same time. Um, it, it it is. If you don't mind me just exploring this a little bit more, because I just think it, it it's so powerful. This this symbolism. It's it's interesting how. 
Um, the fish is a symbol. Um, it, it was widely adopted in, in Christianity and even as a secret symbol. Uh, it was a way of showing your your affiliation, you know. So there's, there's something really powerful about this little fella that, that popped up. But also um, I was interested in um, your comments on the goldfish in terms of memory and forgetting and I wondered if you'd like to just expand on that a little in terms of um Sager of course is very much about remembering and our friend the goldfish doesn't have much capacity for for memory no I I think that was something that I was drawn to um because I think what I was looking at was I was looking at embodied knowledge. That's that's what I kind of came to understand, you know, intergenerational trauma as this kind of knowledge that you have without having learnt it, um, without having learnt it cerebrally. So it's it's like muscle memory. Obviously, with muscle memory, you have to repeat something over and over and over again. But after that, it happens without you being able to, you, you know, you don't have to be thinking about the thing that you're doing. Do you know what? Skateboarding is a good example. I used to skateboard when I was a kid and I was never any good at it. But at my best times, it was through repeating and repeating and repeating a trick until I could do it simply by thinking I'm going to do the trick now. And then I had to leave it to the muscles. The muscles did it. And if I did engage my brain, I was like, right, I'm going to do that trick now. I'd mess it up. It was all about giving the knowledge to the muscles and then allowing them to just do their own thing. And I think I find muscle memory utterly fascinating. And, and for me, this, this kind of, the trauma is, 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 is related, not related, but runs parallel to muscle memory, this kind of knowledge that you have without it being, you know, images you can draw up in your mind. <clears throat> that was a long winded description, but I'm sure everyone gets it now. The, the goldfish has no memory, but they, they learn and they learn through repetition. And, and so that's something that for me, you know, in regards to ritual and Jewishness and being able to sing, you know, a two minute Hebrew song without knowing what any of it means. Um, you know, that's through repetition, that's embodied knowledge. My Jewishness is embodied. And actually now I'm trying to reconnect with my Jewish practice and, and it's so rusty because I haven't practiced it for 15 years. Um, it has become disembodied knowledge. And so I have to regain the knowledge and start the repetition process again in order to be able to pass that down to, you know, the next generation. Yeah. So, so the, the importance of, of ritual perhaps as part of memory. And I was going to ask um, uh, what you mean, and I'll quote you by, um, it's a strange feeling to reach for memory and hold nothing. Well, I mean, that's in a poem about my auntie Erica. And that was about, um, literally, that line came from me writing that poem and struggling to remember the memories of my grandfather that were on his walls. So pictures of members of our family when they were younger. Uh, 
but what it came to embody is this notion of like I I know the stories and I am deeply connected to them through my grandparents and I've seen pictures if you know if I really look deep into my memory I can probably find somewhere like a very hazy image of what my grandfather's father and mother looked like or and his sister and these are the people that he lost um but actually like you know I have no I have I have no clear memory of them and and yet their story is so um so kind of deeply embedded in my own um and i suppose there's also a fear in there in that line of you know what what happens when our memories fade um as they will and what are we left with and i mean i'm not too comfortable talking about uh my grandfather's last years um but obviously you know our memories fade and that's really really difficult and trauma can often be what we what we're left with um and wherever it's possible i suppose we have to try and resolve these things um and i and i don't i don't think there's any clear way of there's there's no standard practice for resolving trauma um so it's different different for everyone yeah yeah um and and it is interesting when you talk about fading memories or reaching for a memory and holding nothing it almost reflects in some ways the use of silence um you know whether it's space on the page or, or silence um when you're when you're reciting um uh, and I think that was something that Ilya Kaminsky commented on and and of course he describes um, uh, Seda as as a beautiful lyric, and I thought there was some. I don't know whether he's even an influence um, in in your work, um, but um, you know, hugely impressive. I know that um, the BBC named him as one of twelve artists that changed the world, for example. Um, really interesting story, uh, isn't it? In his own right, he became deaf. Uh, through mum, mumps as a child, but I read that he um, chose to use the English language um, almost to work in a parallel reality, and that really resonated with me in terms of your work and whether you feel memory is like a parallel reality. Wow, I mean that's a that's a question, isn't it? Do I feel memories of parallel reality? Um, I I tell you what I do feel. I feel like we, the way that we experience our memories is a is a is a parallel reality that we can reach into. Uh, I know from my own experience, um, not just in this, but 
<clears throat> talk therapy, psychodynamic therapy, um, uh, just I think also kind of like getting to grips with yourself over uh, uh, 15 years of artistic practice that we have our memories and our memories are constantly playing and impacting us. And these might not be memories in a sense, you know, the kind of slides that we can draw from in our brain, but this is memory that may have become embodied. And we are able to impact the lens through which we view these memories. We are able to pick these memories out. Excuse me. We are able to pick these memories out and examine them and examine our place within them and examine their impact on us and examine the the story that we have taken as a framework from from that experience and we are able to we are able to 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 impact on that and we have a choice um provided we have the means and i and i and i hope that one day everyone has the means um we have a choice to to make that parallel reality a re, a parallel reality that ex, that is useful for us that is serving us in a positive way because I know that a part of Seda and a part of, you know, the book that I will never write, <laughs> essentially like my own uh, challenges that have led me to kind of uh, therapy and whatnot, that, um, that my parallel universe was not serving me. It was, it's constantly there and it's constantly impacting the way that I behave or was behaving. Shall we take this outside was a part of that. It was acknowledging that there was a, a, a behavioral flaw that I was experiencing every day and it was not serving me at all. It was ruining my life. And I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't like, I wasn't fighting. I just had this internal world that was so full of rage and so keen and desperate to enact violence because that's how in that world that's how you assert your goodness and your use as a man as a courageous member of society and 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 so i got to grips with that parallel universe and you know thank goodness i did and then you know seder is a certain there is a, a certain parallel universe there which is you know, I'm kind of like a tertiary receptor of it, but it's still impacting me. And this was me getting to grips with it and 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 changing my framework so it can so it can serve me. And one of the ways that it served me, and one of the ways that I've got to grips with it, is making me feel closer to my Jewishness and making me feel better equipped to pass on this aspect of my identity that was so enriching um and and yeah so is um is memory a parallel universe yeah okay it is but it's a parallel universe that we can reach into and that we can um we can change our relation to because it, it while it runs parallel 
it is also constantly reaching in and constantly affecting our our embodied life um so yeah wow that was a great question i really enjoyed that Oh, good. Well, it's something you can revisit, isn't it? That was great. Uh, It's wonderful. Adam, can I steal you just for a little bit longer, um, if you don't mind? Um, It's so, so fascinating um, what we're sharing. But um, but because I would I really don't want to leave out your your teaching, if if you don't mind. And and in terms of what you were just saying, um, if you like getting to grips with your reality, I I think that's so um, significant in terms of your teaching approach and particularly because. Um, I know that you recently worked with Accumulate, the art school for the homeless, and uh, that's interesting in terms of how you're encouraging um, people um, affected by homelessness to 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 discover language and stories. And equally, you work with young people who are part of Mockingbird, which is a global award-winning and pioneering program led by the Fostering Network in the UK. I mean, th- these are both such strong examples of 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 how um i think teaching and working particularly through the arts and in this case poetry must must be such a an opportunity and space for compassion perhaps for all of these people could could you tell us more about that please uh yeah absolutely so um i when i first started kind of um setting out as a professional artist um workshopping i'm going to start at the beginning <laughs> workshopping was <laughs> a way to uh a way to uh, essentially supplement writing and performing so it was something that i was able to do that didn't require me to essentially work in a bar where I didn't have kind of control over the, my, my hours or or, or or in any realm. I worked in a bunch of different kind of uh, areas. I worked as a, a labourer, also very inflexible. There's lots of things that you can do to supplement a creative practice and, and teaching and, and workshopping uh, is one of the ways that you kind of get to use your skill set to, uh, to, 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 um, you know, make a wage. So I set out um, workshopping with uh, Tender, actually, which was an organisation who uh, who put me in schools and I was doing sexual health workshops and substance misuse workshops and sometimes healthy relationship workshops. So I was talking about... Um, uh, in the healthy relationship workshops, we would talk about signs of control, which can lead to abuse, um, and like the notions of a healthy relationship for teenagers. So then we would also, in the substance misuse workshops, we were essentially talking about drugs, and uh, and I think kids have lots of questions in regards to you know what that's not so important we were talking about drugs and in sexual health we were talking about sexual health now this was a way for me to go into schools and meet really challenging questions from young people um which i think really kind of developed my skill set as well as obviously delivering sometimes challenging uh content uh to 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 classroom spaces um that through kind of building my skill set there i was able to kind of deliver poetry sessions um and and actually rap workshops as well and because rap was something that lots of young boys especially were were kind of like maybe more on board with than poetry or story writing uh as a rapper that skill set kind of 
took me to um, a kind of rooms where there's often challenging behavior. So that then kind of, um, or, uh, yeah, so that led me to kind of alternative provision, um, working with uh, young people with behavioral issues. Uh, and, uh, and do you know what? I loved working in those spaces. I, I, I loved it. I know some of my co- peers and my colleagues aren't, you know, that's not necessarily the space that they like to work, but there was something about that, 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 those uh, spaces I was working in that um, I just enjoyed. I enjoyed being to, br- to being able to bring creativity into that space, meet the chaos with with a bit of creative chaos. And I think the way that I work is maybe a little bit chaotic, and maybe that's what responded well in in those spaces that could kind of often be a bit more chaotic and a bit more Ooh, anarchic. That's interesting. And, and you and and you Ooh. you have you have to flex you have to flex when you're working in these spaces because you know um if young people have kind of lots of challenges in their lives then who knows what's kind of coming in with them to that space and who knows what might arise and that might not even i'm not i'm not even talking about challenging behavior i'm just talking about a conversation that can come up and you need to be able to give space to have these conversations but you also want to be able to kind of channel them into the creative exercise so it's all about flexibility and kind of being on your toes a little bit. And I think that was something that I, firstly, those spaces shaped my practice and my practice kind of served those spaces. So it was, it was, it was a, a symbiotic relationship, essentially. And, um, and that led me to um, working with the Fostering Network. And uh, I ran a few kind of creative sessions for them examining family. And poetry could be a part of those sessions and it was a part of those sessions, but actually it was more about the conversations and just allowing those conversations to shape creativity and and providing a safe space and offering kind of some small creative tools so young people could kind of carry on that conversation either together or just kind of by themselves really important stuff and i and uh the mockingbird project is an incredible project and uh you know they the team there is incredible and they're doing the most fantastic work in regards to uh just a, a fostering as a practice they've they've kind of they run a different way of fostering which is constellation focused so rather than they're just being a home and the local council um there is a, a collection a constellation of homes and they're all connected and so you essentially create a village so when a, 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 a looked after child or uh, goes into a placement they have a village of people that they are that are there to kind of support each other in the in in the looking after of that child and the supporting of that child and from my experience my limited kind of contact with the young people it seems to be absolutely and do you know what my experience is important isn't important in this the awards that they're winning the studies that have been done it's a fantastic model and i'm absolutely blessed to work with them because i just i believe so wholeheartedly in what they do and what I do with the nest um, uh, is I, you know, essentially they were looking for a creative program to run with their young people. So they asked me to come in and, and kind of present a potential project. And what I presented and what we run is the nest. And it's a participant led project, um, w- which is the participants, the young people involved, get to choose the uh, the mediums that they want to work in. 
So essentially, I come in with a menu of like people I know that create that run great workshops, and the young people present all their ideas as well. And then I put it all together and I try and create a program that uh, is super high quality. I'm working with really amazing artists and uh, reflects the young people's ideas, even if it's not their exact ideas. It reflects their input, so they have some creative control over the process as a whole. And then because I uh, and my team are every session it means that we can bring in anyone if they want to work with a filmmaker and make a movie i can bring in someone who i know creates brilliant stuff and has the best equipment and is like an inspiring and brilliant person and I can design a workshop with them. I'm there to ensure that the facilitation aspect is like is on point and any kind of any needs are met in the room. Um, and, and we can bring in anyone potentially that the young people want to work with. And the idea behind this is I've done thousands of poetry and creative writing workshops and they are brilliant. And the resilience and the emotional intelligence that I've seen kind of develop in young people that have kind of engaged over time with these projects, like it can't be understated. But what it does do is that it it requires literacy and lots of young people are alienated by that. So it's it isn't for it isn't always for everyone. Um by giving this kind of like creative control to the young people we get to design workshops that um get them out of their comfort zone build their resilience build their emotional intelligence build their creative toolkit which then makes them more um able to kind of express themselves healthily um and 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 articulately and eloquently um and 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 it's as inclusive as it can possibly be uh, and yeah, I'm it's, I'm so proud of it as a as a as a project because it, it it feels like it's really successful and it's built on years of uh, my experience as a facilitator and and it's really well supported by yeah Bud. yeah I mean it was lovely to see um, you know accounts that were flourishing of uh, both via Mockingbird and, and via your work with Accumulate and and what I was curious about was when you're working with um, looked after children, um, young people affected by homelessness. Is it an interesting experience that because they are coming from different positions, if you like, of, of vulnerability, that when you're exploring creativity through uh, the idea of taking risks and also trusting failure as legitimate development steps, is that a different process to navigate that people who are already vulnerable are now creatively exploring the idea of of risk and failure so i think there's like two things that i consider when working with uh, more vulnerable groups and one is um like in regards to risk uh the risk that i can seek in my work that's coming from a very privileged position I, you know, I said earlier, I need to find a creative project that, you know, puts something on the line. Otherwise, where's the risk? Where's, where's, where's the, where's the need? Now, if I go into a room with vulnerable people, I'm like, right, everybody, you need to find the thing that's risky and you, you need to explore that. I'm just going to go in and re-traumatize everyone. That's, that's not, that's absolutely not how I approach a workshop. What I do is I, 
create um, questions which give space to for people to bring whatever is there. And then they choose the amount of risk that they are comfortable bringing. And what tends to happen is over a longer kind of series of workshops, over time, people become more comfortable in the space. They become more comfortable with me. They become more comfortable with the process. And they will therefore um, take more risk in their creative output. What I will do from the off is I will encourage experimentation and celebrate failure because anything that, like any failure, especially if you've asked people to do something, excuse me, especially if you've asked people to do something quite fruity, then like if people have done it, if people have stepped in, I always say at the beginning of every session, I'm going to ask you to do some weird things sometimes, things that you're not going to see the point of to, to, to begin with, but please trust the process. And if it doesn't work, you've tried it and that's fantastic. And we'll just harvest it for parts later. And I will always celebrate failure. It's so important to celebrate the trust of the process, because that's the thing that will build resilience, that will build emotional confidence and will allow risk further down the line, which will then create a greater sense of pride and achievement, like at the end of a product, whether it's my project or another, or even something that they create at home. It's all about being open to what's in the room. And it's all about like in encouragement. I mean, this sounds so kind of like basic, but it, it, it really is. Provide Provide the opportunity to um, take risks in safety. That's sort of my job. I used to think my job was providing a fun uh, output for literacy. I used to think my job before that was just making poetry look cool many years ago when I was much younger and cooler than I am now. But like my job now, I think, is providing spaces where risk can be taken safely. Um, and it doesn't matter how small that risk is. It's just trusting in a process and trusting in something that you've not done before um, and seeing what's on the other end and hopefully sharing that with other people and allowing them to join you in that process and to celebrate you and to you to celebrate others as well um, and creating that creative community that supports uh, the taking of those risks. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it does sound really, really wonderful what what you achieve and as I'm going to have to force myself to think about drawing this to a close because I know I've stolen you um a bit longer than <laughs> than right. planned I shouldn't, I shouldn't bang on so long should I oh no it's because it's all so interesting and and I and I've robbed you I I didn't admit that um I'd I'd stolen you longer but I I did read if this is still the case Adam, that um, on January the 27th, uh, you're headlining the Holocaust Memorial Day in Wrexham, if, if that's still the case. Um, this season publishes on January the 25th. So I wanted to mention that. And I understand the theme is ordinary people. And I'd just be interested in, in your thoughts on that, because it seemed to be exploring a wrestle that ordinary people can have between exercising courage, conscience, or cowardice? In regards to the ordinary people theme, my thoughts are that, um, like, the Holocaust happened to ordinary people. 
and it was ordinary people, you know, mostly that enacted it or uh, allowed it to happen. And so, you know, I think it's it's in that list. It's encouraging cowardice, and uh, the ordinary people theme is essentially like a call to action or a call from inaction. Um, and we are all, you know, privy to things that are happening where we could um, be more empathetic or or even be more active. I mean, I'm guilty since having a child of being way less active outside of my professional work. Um, and actually talking about this now, I'm like, all right, cool, come on, man. Like, you, I'm saying this, but I also know that there are a few things that I used to do without fail as much as oh well, without fail as much as possible i used to do often which you know was my own kind of call from inaction um uh yeah so i think i think the ordinary people thing is 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 a, is, a, is an excellent way to kind of remind everyone that uh i tell you what I'm, I keep talking in generalities. There's there's something happening right now or very recently that has involved ordinary people, and it's and it's the Kanye West thing. And I don't know if you're aware of this, Paula. Have you followed the Kanye Kanye West debacle? Uh, uh, some of some of it, but not in detail. So Kanye West is an absolute stone cold musical legend. As a hip hop fan, I held him in very high regard for a, a long period of my life. Um, I wasn't necessarily his biggest fan, but I I recognize the impact that he's had on the culture in lots of amazing ways um and i've recognized his legacy as well what he had and he's obviously a, not a well man but the form that his unwellness has taken recently is like vehement vicious venomous and vocal the four v's anti-semitism um and spouting like full-on you know global conspiracy elders uh, the elder protocols of zion like the, the, almost the birth of the global conspiracies like he's spouting like absolute rot and it's and it can't and even a trump supporter Yes, absolutely. And and that cannot help but be damaging. It, it like even even people who are like, well, he's not well. If like the reiteration of these like horrible myths, these awful I mean, I, like I haven't watched everything because it's too it's too hurtful. I I've I tried to watch a lot of it. Um and and I've had to stop because it's like, this is, I'm, you know, this, I'm re-traumatizing myself. So I haven't watched all of it, but I, 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 I from what I've seen, like I, I wouldn't, he's like one step away from Holocaust denial. If I wouldn't be surprised if he's done it, but he's, he, he is doing horrible work right now to the Jews and people, like ordinary people, people who have podcasts are, you know, whether they're famous or not, they are at their heart ordinary people because we all are. So so what what are they doing? Why aren't why isn't this being challenged? What's I think is great that he was dropped from his sponsors, but like it wasn't quick enough. <laughs> they were like, let's yeah, just see how yeah. this pans out. And it's like, well, all those people in those boardrooms are ordinary people. 
Um, and they're just letting the the you know the money question getting 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 away of the human question, and you know that's something that we can all do. Um, but I don't know, like I, I'm 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 off on one now, um, so I will. But yeah, yeah. Well, I I found it particularly frightening, you know, that someone of that influence who was um, uh, openly a Trump supporter, bearing in mind all of his views were being aligned um it, it's just it's just so shocking um it's it's very very hard to understand but perhaps it points us to a way of how we can um draw this particular podcast to a close because obviously the series question poses the question can art save us and just whatever your I know that could be a huge topic in its own own right, but just whatever your thoughts on that might be um, in terms of how the arts are used negatively, positively. It, it's even interesting because your your book refers to the paintings that came out of the concentration camps, for example, which, which is remarkable, isn't it, in, in, under such dangerous conditions that artwork continued to happen. I wondered, Adam, with, with, I know it's a huge question, um, but with all that in mind, how do you respond to that role of art, how it can help us? Can art save us? Um, it's really interesting that you talk about the, the drawings and the paintings that came out of Theresienstadt with um, the painter uh, Friedel uh, Dicker Brandis. Um, and those art classes that she ran were a part of a clandestine school which was being um, run in order to create a sense of normality for the children that were in that concentration camp. And ultimately it saved them from a... um, it saved them from a certain knowledge. It saved them from terror. It gave them a sense of normality and structure and community. But ultimately it didn't save them because all that's left of them is these drawings and paintings. And that's a really heavy thing to say, isn't it? But I think it's very important to say that art can help save us. This, this is what I think. I think art can help to build empathy it can help to build emotional resilience. It can help to tell the stories that need to be told in the ways that can shape moral frameworks. Um, it can help us take responsibility. Uh, you know, there's there's unending uses for what art can do. But I don't think it can save us by itself. I think artists are celebrated and venerated and have done and have been forever because they create things that that we enjoy and that we find fascinating and they're constantly striving for the new and they're constantly striving for the things that 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 will surprise and that will move and that will create a sense of awe so we're we're like digging for these jewels um and we can hold these jewels up but there are at the moment we have all these strikes happening and and the people that organize for the unions, the people that organise 
anywhere, anyone that organises a march, that organises a protest, that organises a play group, uh, a stay and play, organisers are not celebrated and venerated in the same way as artists, but they are the people that, they are the people that, 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 that actually can save us. And I'm sure there are some artists out there that are incredibly good at organising. And obviously, to some extent, I have proven myself to be. But on a general basis, like it is not my strength. I work with producers who are much better at that. Producers don't get enough credit. They don't get celebrated. Artists have to work with people who are, are good at bringing people together. Artists can provide the reason that people come together but someone actually has to corral those people. Someone has to make sure those people are seeing those posters, that people are getting that information to be there. So the organizers, artists and organizers, they can save us. The, the, let's use Accumulate as an example. The artists that come in, they get to they get to work with people and, and the Accumulate work with, and they get to provide those, you know, the the the, the skill sets, the tools, the 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 fun the 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 um opportunity to kind of connect with aspects of yourself but that wouldn't happen without the Maurice Cambers that wouldn't happen without the 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 people that make that happen the people that send the emails the people that <laughs> have the conversations and and have the 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 information in their in their heads so yeah art can definitely help save us and i don't think we can be saved without it but i also i like i like i want to celebrate the organizers as well because without them it we're effed <laughs> we won't be saved <laughs> <laughs> well listen adam um you know obviously a really huge thank you for for being so generous with your time i hope it hasn't been too close to the bone because we have had to um delve into memory and into some very uh dark and tragic places like auschwitz itself so i really really do appreciate everything you've shared thank you for joining me today pleasure um thank you for having me and uh, and for bringing such uh, challenging questions been wicked <laughs> bless you thank you adam and shalom <laughs> cheers mate